The following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. Good morning. Uh, Please open your Bibles to Galatians 5. We're going to be in chapter 5, verse 7 through 12. Before we begin, we do want to pray and give thanks and praise God for... uh, the gift of life uh, that we are celebrating, uh, Josh and Taylor are obviously at home, resting well. Uh, Taylor, by God's grace, gave birth to Riley. Riley Jane? Is that right? Yeah. Sounds right. Uh, just, just surprised everybody. A couple weeks early, just went right in, knocked it out. Everyone's doing really well, um, but we're going to pray for them, for Taylor, uh, and for her rest and recovery. Um, and, of course, there's a meal train going around somehow. So uh, just ask Amy. If you're not on that and you're not on the Facebook, you don't know how to help, go see Amy. Amy's in the back with all the other babies. Uh, she can help coordinate you to get on the meal train. Is that okay, Amy? That, okay, great. All right, let's pray for, for Josh and Taylor and, uh, and for others, and then let's begin our time together. Father, thank you for uh, the blessing and the gift of life. We're so grateful for Riley and uh, her entrance into the world. God, she, like all of us, was wonderfully made. In, uh, in her mother's womb, and we're grateful, God, to celebrate not only just her, her birth, but the wonders of your creation and the gift of life. And we pray for Taylor specifically. We pray that she would continue to rest and recover uh, from the delivery and for Josh to care for uh, not simply uh, Taylor, but all the other children as well. But may they enjoy this sweet time of... Uh, of rest and celebration for the gift that they've been given. We pray for health and uh, thanksgiving, and we are so grateful for all good gifts that come from above. We pray now, God, for our time, that we would be blessed by your word, that our own hearts and minds would be calmed by your spirit, ready and equipped to hear what it is we must hear. God, we come with with empty hearts and empty hands, desiring to be filled by your word. So God, give us a supernatural desire to love and to abide in your word. Pray for your, your blessing in our lives through Christ's name. Amen. Galatians chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. You were running well, and who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. But I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, Why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. It's a bit strange to say at the end of a sentence like verse 12, this is the word of the Lord, but it is indeed the word of the Lord. We'll get into what I think Paul means by that, beyond 
the obvious in just a few moments. But let's quickly remind ourselves of the context. Paul has labored for the last five chapters to remind the Galatian churches, the Christian in the Galatian churches, that they are indeed Christians, not by virtue of their own effort or work, but by virtue of their faith alone. Faith is the trust and the reliance on the work of Christ for the forgiveness of their sins alone. It's not a reliance or a trust in our own strength or capacity to earn or perform our salvation. It's not a reliance upon the law to lead us to salvation through obedience to it, but faith alone in Christ alone. That's the message of the book of Galatians. So Paul has reminded his readers that he has been called and set apart by Christ to teach that message. And so his message comes with the authority and the approval of Christ himself. In the last several chapters, we saw how he has attacked the opponents who have crept into the church and have begun to twist the gospel around, teaching salvation by works, justification by obedience to the law, not by faith alone in Christ alone. So he's dismantled their argument and has given us reason to believe that if we want to be justified, declared righteous before God, if there's any hope for us sinners to be in the presence of God and not condemned, it is in the basis of Christ's work for us that we must hope and believe, not in our own performance or deeds. There is a place for good works, and that good work is a response of our love and freedom which the next several chapters of verse, chapters 5 and 6 will teach us. But Paul has been laboring us, laboring to teach us that we are freed from the bondage of slavery and sin and captivity to the law, that we can walk freely, joyfully, and without burden under the banner of Christ. Christians then are called to run in this freedom. The analogy he uses in verse 7 here is one of a race. Running a race. This is a common illustration in the Bible about what the Christian life looks like. And Christians are called to run the race. And not simply to run, but to finish. Not by works, but to run and finish the race by grace through faith. So this isn't a race in which you win by getting to the finish line first. This isn't a race you win by being the fastest or by running the hardest. You finish by simply persevering to the end. By running faithfully as God has so called you. There are no first place prizes for those who have greater faith, but those who have even the smallest faith and can finish the race, aided by the strength that the Spirit provides. That's what the calling of the Christian life is, to run and finish the race by grace through faith. And he says here in verse 7 that the Galatians started off their race well. You were running well. 
Now this race is not a sprint. It's a marathon. It's one that you enter into at whatever point in your life for the long haul. Some of us start out the race sprinting and quickly we run out of steam. We faint before we hit the finish line. We start off well with lots of energy, but we've set a pace that we can't sustain. Have you ever been running? Perhaps you tried to keep up with somebody who's a lot faster than you or just has better lungs and genes than you, and you're thinking in the first, for, first few minutes that you can do this, you're breathing, you're fine, and all of a sudden you're wondering why your heart feels like it's about to jump out of your chest or why your lungs are on fire, and you realize you've gone way too fast, way too early, and there's no way you're going to make it another two, three miles. This is a common problem among runners, and that same analogy works in the Christian life that many of us eager to jump into all that God has given us like children in a candy buffet, stuff ourselves and run freely without pacing and understanding that we must give ourselves to the long run. We must see the finish line, not simply the step ahead of us. We are called to run and to finish the race by grace through faith. But there are enemy forces that are at work against us, and they delight in our falling and in our tripping over one another. They seek to hinder us and to trouble us, even as these agitators do in the Galatian churches. So the question before us this morning that I want us to consider and ponder is how do we focus on our calling to run and finish the race by grace through faith without tripping over our temptations, without falling and ensnaring ourselves in the pitfalls and the obstacles that are in our way? And this is what Paul has in mind. He's, he's shifting his argument from a mostly theological argument about justification He's, he's done, to, done the work to show that we are not saved by works but by faith. And now he's beginning to shift the conversation into if we're free then from performing our salvation by works of the law, how then do we live in the freedom that we've been given by Christ? And so he's kind of giving this final address of the issue, speaking one last time to those who would seek to lead them astray and off course. And so there's a couple of things that we're going to do just walking through each verse of the text, making some observations and notes along the way, and then ending with a couple exhortations from the Word. First, we begin there in verse 7, when he says that you've been running well. The rhetorical question he asks then is, who hindered you from obeying the truth? Now, this isn't because Paul doesn't know. This is rhetorical. Just remember in chapter 3, who has bewitched you, O foolish Galatians? In fact, in some sense, it doesn't really matter who is doing the bewitching or the hindering. In chapter 1, remember, Paul says that if anyone, an angel or even I, were to preach a different gospel, let him be accursed. So it doesn't matter who actually is doing the false teaching, the hindering, the leading astray. You were running well. The finishing work of the race is the goal of the Christian life, 
And yet we will find ourselves tempted and hindered by outside forces. Some obstacles will lay ourselves, but many snares are laid by the enemy himself. Finishing well is the goal of the Christian life. To finish well, we must also begin and to sustain that pace along the way. We do so by acknowledging that our goal is not to run the fastest or to outrun our brothers and sisters, but to simply make it to the end. To finish well is not simply to finish, but to finish faithfully, on course. This is the goal of the Christian life. But there are some who have come in, who have set obstacles in the way, and have hindered them from running, or as Paul puts it, obeying the truth. So notice that there's a correlation between the running of the Christian life, the race of the Christian life, and the obedience to the truth of the gospel. That's what the truth here means. Back in chapter 2, he talks about the truth of the gospel being preserved as he fights against the battles going on in both Jerusalem and Antioch and in Galatia. There's obedience to the truth of the gospel that must be maintained if you are to continue to run the race well. So the truth is not just something to then be believed, but is to be obeyed. That is, without the biblical truth of the gospel, without the ground of the biblical truth, there is no biblical living. Or to put it another way, without the biblical truth to ground you, biblical living will elude you. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? You were running, and now you've stopped. Now you're endangering of disqualifying yourself from the race. Who has hindered you from obeying the truth? So the picture is that the running of the Christian life is the obedience and the faithfulness to the words of Christ in submission to all that He has delivered and taught. Now we know this by Christ's own words. The end of Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of every nation, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, commanding them all that I have taught, or teaching them all that I have commanded. So the goal of the Christian life is to grow as disciples, first entering into the church through baptism, and then growing, running, through obedience to the teaching of Christ. Our teachers in the church must pass on the teachings of Christ that we may grow as disciples. And so we must finish well by seeking to be faithful to the commands of His Word. Now these commands are not the things upon which we build our hope of salvation. We have earned our salvation by faith in Christ, not by our works or obedience to the commands of Christ. But our obedience does indeed follow from our faith. So when we talk about obedience, we're talking about running the race well. We may stumble and misstep from time to time. We may try to jump over obstacles and end up tripping ourselves. We may fail to clean up the path that's before us. At times we may stumble over each other as we run together. But the truth is 
that if we are faithful to the teachings of Christ, if we give ourselves over to His Word, to the help and the aid of His Spirit, and the fellowship of the church, we will be faithful to finish well. Some of you have started well your journey in the race of faith. But you may be here this morning knowing that you're just out of gas. That you haven't paced yourself. That you heaped on yourselves discipline, that's of discipline, and you've promised yourself that you're going to do better and do more, and you're going to read every day, and you're going to pray for three hours every night, and you're going to wake up early, and you're going to watch the sun come up as you praise God in tongues or something really holy and spiritual like that. And the first morning, you fail because you didn't have it in you. And you're down and you're discouraged. Friends, we've all been there. And we will be there again. Running the race means not simply failing to obey, but in obedience, repenting, stepping back on the path, and beginning again. So if you are running well, look to others around you who may be struggling. But if you have found yourself out of gas and struggling, who began well but are now slowing down, this morning's sermon is for you. Consider who might be hindering you or what might be in your path. That obedience to the truth is part of the Christian life. And that if it were easy, everyone would be doing it. But also remind yourselves of the promise of Christ, that all who come to Him will find rest, because His burden is easy and His yoke is light. By easy, we don't mean without challenge or difficulty, but by easy we mean joyful. For those who desire to and take pleasure in working out, it is not easy to lift weights several times your own. But if it is joyful to you, the work is worth it. The yoke is easy, the burden is light. How much more than should Jesus' own commands and claim on our life be? Certainly relative to the yoke and the burden that the Pharisees put on the Jews, that the Judaizers put on the Galatians, we must turn again in our freedom to finish well as we obey joyfully. But notice the other verbs that are going on throughout the passage here. In verse 7, they are being hindered. They are deceptively persuaded there in verse 8. They're troubled. The leaven is troubling them there in verse 10. Verse 12, I wish that those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. So the, there's a there's an agitation going on in the life of the believer that is causing them to stumble along the way. There's a hindering and a deceptive persuasion, a troubling and an unsettling on the behalf of the agitators. But Paul here is saying that the, these, these men are not the enemies, though they work for the enemies. He recognizes that they are a foe, but not the ultimate foe but that there works against God's people a great deceiver. This is what he means when he says earlier that we have found ourselves under the elementary principles of 
nature. That there are demonic forces at work against His people, God's people, to keep us from running the race well. Who place obstacles and snares in our ways. There is, in reality, an accuser of the brethren. There is an enemy of God's people who hate us because we love Christ. Would it not then be tactical that He would beset us with all sorts of weights and hindrances? It may be in the places you least expect it. Think for a moment where you have the most victory over sin and temptation. Well, of course, He'll gladly puff you up with pride in an area where you seem to be having much success. But it's in the areas where we least expect it where this serpent, crafty as he is, will begin to lay his snares. We are hindered by the great deceiver. Paul says in the end of Ephesians that our wrestling is not with flesh and blood, but with the principalities of the darkness that rages on around us. To ignore that reality is to simply to be naive of the Christian command to stand firm against all attacks. If we think our enemy is only our neighbor, not only do we transgress the commands to love our neighbor, but we also miss the fact that our enemies are much more subtler than that. We have at work against us the great deceiver. And he is calling us to step away from faith. Now, the calling of God is always toward Christ. But the calling of the enemy is always away from Christ. This is what he says in verse 8. The persuasion, the word here meaning this deception, it's not from him who calls you, meaning God. God calls you as a Christian, and He calls you to Christ, faith in Christ, trust in Christ, obedience to Christ, submission to Christ, love to Christ. All the calling of God and the work of the Spirit in your life has the effect of giving you to Christ. So if you're following in the footsteps of some voice that's calling you, and it is not closer into the heart of Christ, Friends, it may very well be that you are following the enemy and not him who indeed has called you. The calling of God is always towards Christ. That is the work of the Spirit in our lives. His job is to show us how Christ has been merciful in these ways and in that, to remind us of Christ's teaching, to give us a heart to praise and worship God even when it's difficult in our circumstances. And when we are tempted to go in the opposite direction and do take steps in the opposite direction, it is not Him who has called us that we are persuaded to obey, but the enemy who has sought to deceive us. We stand with the Galatians, persuaded by the enemy to follow in the footsteps of evil rather than Him who has called us into the heart of Christ. So the calling of God is always toward Christ. If you're taking steps in obedience, 
and you find yourself further and further away from your relationship with God. You're doing all the right things. You're reading your Bible. You're showing up. You're giving yourself over to the laws and the commands of Scripture, and yet you feel further and further away from Christ. It is likely that you have succumbed to the subtle temptation to earn or perform yourself into the pleasure of God. And though we use the right language and we espouse the right theology, even the devil himself, who knows better than the- theology than any one of us here, would gladly allow us to twist ourselves into a form of legalism and be further than Christ than have very poor theology, but close to the heart of Christ. This is the Galatian danger, that they are being persuaded and deceived by a voice that is not God's to follow after temptations. Friends, we should be aware of small, corrupting influences. Be aware of small, corrupting influences. It's easy enough to see the big traps along the way. The cliff on that side, the roaring fire here. But it's the small dangers that are sometimes imperceptible while we're distracted on other things that we're that we're often close to stepping into. We must be aware of such small and corrupting influences so that we are not led gradually with good intentions into condemnation. What are some of these small and corrupting influences? Well, I'm sure you can think as many in your own life. I can give you a couple categories. Uh, Any influence, of course, which leads you away from Christ would be that which is corrupting. Although it may not be immediately, but gradually over the course of time. I do want you to consider the TV shows you watch, the movies you watch, the children's shows you allow your children to watch, the podcasts you listen to, the music you listen to, the company you keep, the jokes you you share it. The list could go on. These small corrupting influences have a way of changing subtly our trajectory. If we are not regularly recalibrating ourselves and engaging in introspection, meditating on the words of Christ so that we can say, Lord, show me where I might be led astray, it is very possible and indeed likely that without realizing it, We've drifted far from shore. This is the danger the writer of Hebrews warns his audience about. The subtle drift. That's what he means by falling away. Now those who are in Christ will be kept by Christ and restored by the end of all days to Christ. But the reality is that we can drift and we can bring reproach upon Christ. We can grieve the Spirit. We can even harm our souls if we are not aware and paying attention to these small and corrupting influences. And so your homework this week, even today, would be to examine your own life and take stock of what might be the small areas where these influences that the enemy may use can begin to corrupt or lead. Where are those small traps that you may step into without realizing? The enemy is at work in our lives. Now, I'm not the spiritually minded person that my wife is. I think a consequence of her being charismatic growing up in a 
Assemblies of God Church. And thank God for it. So she's helped me open up my eyes in a lot of ways to some of the more spiritual things going on that somebody like me who tends to like to pretend to be rational usually doesn't pay attention to. But the reality is that there is a whole work going on around us that seeks to undermine our faith. This isn't us simply blaming the devil for everything that bad that happens in our life, but being real about the fact that he is working in our lives to try to undermine the gospel and to lead us astray. I simply want us to realize that as we run the race, we are not alone. We have a great cloud of witnesses, Hebrews tells us, but we also have those who would oppose us. So do not be hindered or deceptively persuaded by these subtle corrupting influences. Do not allow small troubling and unsettling influences in your lives. Take stock of where that might be coming and remove it. Do it aggressively, urgently, immediately. But there's hope. For if Paul were to leave there, we'd be in pretty discouraging circumstances. We have started well but have not finished well. We're discouraged and despairing of our state before God. We have no way of getting ourselves back onto the path. We've been corrupted slowly. We find ourselves maybe too far by degrees off from where we'd like to be. We're out of gas and we just can't find the energy to get back. I've been there, have you? Well, Paul is confident that we can find our way back. Notice what he says in verse 10, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. Now, wait a minute. He's saying they're being deceived, but he's confident that they won't ultimately be deceived. They're being persuaded, but ultimately won't be persuaded. That they've run off course, but will find themselves off course. I am confident. How? In the Lord, that you will take no other view. And that the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty. What is Paul getting at? His trust is not in the Galatians to pull themselves together. By the way, that's not the point of the sermon or the book of Galatians. Galatians, get yourself together. You're stepping off the path. The point of Galatians is because you are saved by grace through faith and everything is a work of God, your salvation, your justification, and your sanctification is all the work of the Spirit who is doing this in and through you. You will be drawn back to the path of righteousness by the work of God. You who are discouraged, whose tank is empty, who's upset at themselves and at sin, who lose the battle after battle against temptation, the hope here is that Paul has confidence in the Lord who will take you from where you are to where you must be and will ultimately draw you to the path of righteousness that you may cross the finish line in due course. That is, the Galatians' perseverance in the faith is not held or sustained by themselves, but by God. He's confident in the Lord. His strength, His promise, His power, that is what is at work in the believer's lives. He is confident in the Lord. He uses this phrase elsewhere in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. He says to them that the Lord is faithful and He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. 
So there's deception and persuasion happening, and we're giving into temptation, and we're being subtly corrupted by influences and sin in our own life, and we're step by step walking off of the path as we give into our heart's carnal desires. He, though, will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Isn't this what we pray every Sunday in the Lord's Prayer? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. He goes on, We have confidence in the Lord. That is, Paul and those riding along with him. We have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. How? May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. So I think this is one of the areas where Paul, in another book of the Bible, gives us a bigger, bigger picture, more clarity about what he's getting to here. When he says that I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, he means the same thing he says to the Thessalonians here, that he has confidence in the Lord that you will do and are doing what he has commanded, but not by your strength, but by the Lord's directing your hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. So where does all the attention point? Not to your work, not to your faithfulness and obedience, but to the Lord's faithfulness who directs your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. At the end of the day, the same theme of the gospel that he's been hammering over and over and over again in verse by verse and chapter by chapter, Christ has done it. Christ has done it. God has done it. What the law, weakened by the flesh, cannot do, God did. Christ, 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 this is who will keep you and will bring you to the end of the race. We have confidence, he says, in the Lord that you will take no other view. You will not ultimately be deceived, but the Lord will direct your heart to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. He says it again another way in Philippians chapter 1. I am sure of this, there's the confidence again, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Who is the work being, who is accomplishing the work of completion? It is not us. He who began a good work, it is he who will bring it to completion. Paul does not say, God began a good work in you, and now you must finish it and bring it to completion. No, he who began a good work will bring it to completion. It is the same one. So where is our hope and our confidence? It must be with Paul's, in the Lord who will bring us to completion on the day of Jesus Christ, who directs our hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. We have confidence in Christ and His work. We can put it like this. Our dependence and our confidence must be in the Lord. This isn't to, to, to minimize any of the responsibility and the obligations you and I are to exercise in our faithfulness and obedience to Christ. And yet we must depend on Christ for our obedience and faithfulness to Him. It is the Spirit of God which works in us that enables us and energizes us to make steps of obedience toward Christ. And it is our confidence in the Lord that we will do so according to His promise. If you are a Christian this morning and you find yourself out of gas, stepped off the path, you must have confidence and dependence upon the Lord that you will be brought to completion. So the question before you this morning is, are you confident? Are you confident? Are you confident of the Lord's promise to keep you and to bring you into completion?
Are you confident in the Lord's power to work in you? Are you confident in the love of God that will never leave you nor forsake you, that He has not abandoned you even in your suffering and your trials and difficult circumstances? Are you confident in the Word of God that it is enough for you to direct you and to be your sustaining rule of faith? Is, are you confident in the work of Christ on the cross to be sufficient for you, that you don't have to earn or perform your way into the good graces of God? Is your confidence found there or is it found in somehow pulling yourself up by your bootstrap, getting up early enough, working hard enough, forcing yourself to make good on the commitments you made? That's the antithesis of what the gospel means for the Christian life. It means confidence and dependence in the Lord to accomplish what He has called us to do. Are you running the race, aided by the divine strength the Spirit provides, or are you working on your own? So this is the warning that he gives that the one who troubles will be will bear the penalty. That God's confidence, God's work in bringing you to completion will also mean that he, at the end of the day, will take care of whoever it may be that works against you. That is, read the book of Revelation. The enemy who is now bound will be cast into the lake of fire. All will be judged. And the new heavens and the new earth will come into existence, and there we will reign. That's the hope. And so with our justification and glorification comes the enemy's judgment. And therefore our confidence is in God to deliver upon these things. Well, as we continue to go in verse 11, he says, But I, brothers, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? For in that case... The offense of the cross has been removed. Now Paul here is saying that he's not interested in any theological expediency. Meaning, he, he's not interested in making things easy for himself by simply giving in to some of the desires that the Judaizers have. He's unwilling to make certain exceptions or compromises in order to make life a little easier for himself or even for the Galatian churches. He says, I know that it would be easier just to circumcise yourself. Like he says to the Romans, that it's fine to eat meat sacrificed to idols. Because we know that there's no such thing as idols. But here he's not saying it's fine to get circumcised. Circumcise is nothing. Therefore, just make these guys happy. They'll get off your back. This is exactly the place where Paul draws the line. It would be theologically expedient to simply say, let's just give these guys what they want. It'll make our lives easier. They're persecuting those who fail to be circumcised. Certainly for those who are converts, the social ostracism could be very difficult. Paul says to do this kind of thing, though, would it be to empty the cross of its power. It said it would remove the offense or the scandal or the stumbling block of the cross. Meaning, the radical freedom the cross provides would be obliterated if you just gave in to people's commands to do what they think is right, even if you know it's wrong. In fact, especially if you know it's wrong. He's, he's making the case that you cannot have two masters. You can't have circumcision in Christ. The cross is to be the controlling truth of the Christian's life. And all other competitors, circumcision, law, whatever it may be, 
needs to be and must be quickly crushed and set aside. When there is a hindrance in your way, an obstacle among the path, it must not be simply to ignore it, but to remove it. You cannot serve two masters. The cross is meant to be a stumbling block. By this we mean it is meant to confront us and cause us to respond to it. We must recognize that it has a radical freedom attached to it. And that all those who wish to serve the law or to bind the conscience of men will see in the gospel something offensive to their own pride. The Jews themselves would demand signs and the Greeks would demand wisdom. As we read this morning from 1 Corinthians though, to look for such things in the gospel is to miss the entire point. In the gospel we have the stumbling block that the Jews and the Gentiles trip over and yet those who are being saved see within it the scandal of redemption. The cross is meant to be inconvenient to us. Not that it is intentionally there to make our lives hard, but there to hold a mirror to ourselves about what we love, or namely who we love. So the question that I ask to you is where in your own life, Christian, is the cross inconvenient? As you run the race, there will be moments where it becomes inconvenient or inexpedient to be a Christian. You might have experienced this already at work or in your family. And tempted then to downplay your faith. You have strong biblical convictions, for instance, about the sanctity of life or of the biblical definition of marriage. And yet you have some rather outspoken friends or even neighbors whom God has given into your life that you are now tempted, not because of any strategic evangelism, but out of fear to downplay. This is an opportunity, Christian, to know that the stumbling block of the cross is there for a reason. Where else might the cross be inconvenient to your life? Where else in your own life, as you run the race, is it inexpedient to be a Christian as you navigate through the world? Well, in such moments, holding steadfast to the gospel demonstrates your commitment to the cross, to the Lord, not the flesh. So as you consider not only where those small corrupting influences may come from, but where the minor inconveniences of being a Christian may arise, commit yourself to be faithful and steadfast in your obedience to the Lord and not to the flesh in those moments. To empty the cross of its power is the very thing that Christians must not do as they capitulate to the commands and the pressures of the world and the culture around them. As this leads Paul to say in verse 12 something rather startling. I wish that those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Now, he says this sort of tongue-in-cheek as he speaks about circumcision. He says in one sense, why not go all the way? I'd wish they'd let the knife slip. Now this is a bit jarring, of course, to our own modern sensibilities. And we should be careful, of course, of how we try to emulate such language. But emasculation was a pagan practice. It was something done by pagan priests. 
And so this statement that he says about emasculating themselves really is meant to cut in two primary ways. And I use the statement cut intentionally. First, he's meaning that, that emasculation would identify these men as the anti-gospel idolaters that they are. In Galatia and in the pagan world, the, the pagan priests would emasculate themselves during rituals as they worship a false deity. They would cut themselves and they would drink their blood and they'd make a show all to worship a false god. And this was well known and the Christians who would be converted out of such pagan practices would have been well versed in what it means to be emasculated as they saw these priests do the same each year. So when he says that he wishes they would emasculate themselves, he's not simply being vengeful and wanting them to harm themselves, but rather he wishes that they would be fully identified as the anti-gospel idolaters that they are so that the church and the world would know them for who they truly are. But secondly, there's a biblical definition here going on. Back in Deuteronomy 23, back in the law, to emasculate yourself would, would mean that you bar entry, prevent yourself entry into the temple assembly. You could not come into the temple to gather with God's people to worship and offer sacrifices. So Paul's point here is that these men do not belong among the people of God. They do not belong among the Galatian churches. Do not give them the time of day. They are not one of you. They should not be among you. They should not even be allowed to be around you. Now there are times when churches must be welcoming to all sorts of people. But there is a time in which we must make sure that we remove people from the midst. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the man who was unrepentantly in an adulterous relationship with his stepmother was commanded, and the church was commanded, to remove this brother who was eventually restored. We do this through our own church discipline. But even at times, the agitators who would come in to preach a false gospel and lead us astray according to pagan or anti-gospel practices must be dealt with. There is a time and a place for strong language, and for Paul, this was clearly it. When the gospel is under attack and the church is in danger, the time then has come to speak swiftly and sharply. Let me summarize it this way then. What Paul here is saying as he turns his attention to now the ethics and how to live the Christian life, he says, friends, brothers, sisters, it is time to get back on track. You've been led astray, you foolish Galatians. You've been deceived, but it is time to pick up and get back on track. You were running well. You've been hindered. It's time to start going. You've been called by God into the radical, scandalous grace of Christ. So don't let these cross-deniers tell you what to do or where to go. Don't listen to them. Deal with them. Your confidence must be in God, as mine is for you, that He will keep you and defend you. Your hope and your trust and your confidence must be in Him. These men do not have a place or a claim among you. Four quick exhortations then. 
Friends, run with those who are running well. If you find yourself struggling and stumbling, find somebody who is running well. Now, there are no perfect runners in this church, but there are some who are running well by God's grace. If you find yourself stumbling in one area or another, seek a brother or sister and say, can I run with you? Can we meet? Can we talk? Can we pray? Secondly, assist those who are hindered in their running. If you are running well, if the Lord is growing you in grace and in patience, if you are having success in your ministries and in your, uh, in your own desire to grow and to learn to share the gospel, come along those who you know are hindered in their running. This is very much what Paul will talk about in bearing with the failing the weak and carrying the burden of others. Third, keep the voice of the Lord loud and clear. When he says that this was not from him who calls you, he means to say, clear out the clutter of your life so that you can hear more clearly the voice of the Lord who guides you. There are all sorts of voices in our life. I am one of them. You have your own eternal voice. Your spouse, your boss, the world, your coach, your teachers. There are all voices who are speaking into your life, the good and the bad. But it is necessary from time to time to clear out and say, what does the voice of the Lord tell me to do? And who can help me hear it? So run along with those who run well. Assist those who are hindered in their running, that you may help them run well. Keep the voice of the Lord loud and clear as you run. And lastly, fix your endurance on the sustaining and persevering grace of God. Fix your endurance to finish well on the sustaining and preserving grace of God. I'll end here in Hebrews 12. After going through a whole litany of brothers and sisters from the Old Testament who have stood firm in faith, he says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and every sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God, at the throne of God. Christ has run and finished the race you now run. He has beset, been beset by every temptation that you face. And He bore the penalty for every sin that you and I commit. And yet, because He did not sin, and because He finished the race perfectly in submission to God's will, His finishing work for us is counted as ours. His righteousness becomes our own. This is why the author of Hebrew tells us to run the race, not looking to ourselves, but to Christ, who is the founder and perfecter that is the author and the sustainer, the beginning and the end of our faith. For he who began a good work will bring it to completion. He does this for the joy that was set before him. He endures the cross. He despises its shame. He suffers God's wrath. And he is risen from the dead. And he sits now at the right hand of the throne of God that he may intercede for us has sent His Spirit that He may guide us. And we are sustained by that gift as we run together the race that is set before us as we look to Him. That's our charge this morning. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for Christ's work and his satisfaction of your wrath against our sin on the cross. We deserve that wrath. We have sinned. We have fallen. We, like sheep, have gone astray, each one to his own way. There is none who do good, no, not one. But you have laid on him the iniquity of us all, as Isaiah teaches. He became a man that he might bring us peace. He suffered our penalty that we may finish the race free. Help us, Lord, to see where these areas where we have given in to persuasion and temptation and followed after the enemy rather than hearing clearly the call of your voice. Lord, all of this is by your grace. So we pray that we would not look to our own strength, but to the strength you provide and to Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith as we do this. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone, Christ alone. Well, it is our only confidence that our souls to Him belong. Who holds our days within His hands? What comes apart from His command? And what will keep us to the end? The love of Christ which we sing, oh, sing, hallelujah.